What's happening there, Hume SoCal? You guys have a nice day? No? Sad day. It was just, how many of you had a sad day today? Oh, yeah, nobody. Okay, all right. So you all, oh, just one. What? Why? Somebody be nice to her. Just do it. Just, okay, all right. You were just harassing me. Well, we're talking about truth, and we've been talking about truth all week, and just to catch you up to where we are, we're also working our way through the Gospel of John, remember, right? So we, we first started talking about the truth of God, and the fact that John tells us that while no one has ever seen God, that God wants to be known, and that the way He has revealed Himself to us so that we can understand something of who He is, is in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us so that we can understand the truth of who God is. Jesus is the clearest articulation of that. So we, we talked about the truth of God. In our second session, we talked about the truth of the scriptures, or the truth of the Bible, and the fact that the Bible is an overarching story that also works to point us to Christ, right? An inerrant, infallible book that points us to who Jesus is. And we talked last night about the idea that we look at the life of Christ and we learn even more about him Tonight, as we continue, I want you to understand that when we look at Jesus, we not only understand some things about the truth of who He is and who God is as revealed in Him, but when we look at the truth of who Jesus is, there are some truths about us that are revealed as well. So maybe if I were going to give tonight a title, I would say tonight we learn the truth about us, the truth about us as revealed in Christ. We're going to look at John chapter 7, 8, and 9, and like we did last night, we're going to be moving quickly. But as I told you on the very first session, on, that, on that, first, uh, that first session we had together, sometimes when the light comes on, it can be a little bit embarrassing, right? When we start to talk tonight about the truth that's revealed about who we are, I just want to prepare you for the fact that there's a part of that can, that can feel kind of exposing. Uh, some of you may have heard me tell a story before, but the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to me, I'm going to tell you about that. So when I was a freshman in high school, uh, I was in the marching band. You got any marching band nerds up in here? All right, those are my people, my peeps right there. Marching band nerds unite. Uh, I played on the drum line in my marching band, and um, all right, there we go. And so in my school, freshmen played cymbals, uh, sophomores played the bass drum, juniors played the snare, and seniors got to play the tritoms or the quads, or seniors could kind of choose whatever they wanted. But as a freshman in the marching band, I was, uh, I was a cymbal player, right? So if you've ever seen crash cymbals, in order to understand my most embarrassing moment, i got to tell you a little bit about crash cymbals. Crash cymbals in a marching band are played uh, two different ways. They're traditionally played where you crash them together, right? There's a big metal cymbal with a leather strap that goes through the middle of the central hole. You tie it in a knot in the center. You hold on to the leather straps on the outside, and you bang them together, like in the Star Spangled Banner, right? That's the traditional crash cymbal usage. But what a lot of people don't know is that in a marching band, you can also play uh, cymbals like a hi-hat. So it's more like... Uh, more like the symbol that you see kind of over there on the side. You take one on the bottom and one on the top and you hold them together. And then you, you make them available to the snare drummer so the snare drummers can play the snare and the hi-hat, right? It, as a cymbal player, in order to do that, you have to learn all of the football field routines, the big marching routines. You have to learn them all in reverse because you have to march backwards facing the snare drummers so that they can play their drums and, and the cymbals. So my freshman year, I learned all the routines. I learned how to do everything I was supposed to do. We played all the football games. We did a couple of uh, uh, invitational things. But the big deal in Arizona where I grew up was Arizona State University Band Day. All of the training, all of the practice, all of the rehearsals were leading up to ASU Band Day where you go 
to Arizona State University Stadium. There's like 20,000 people in the stands. You get the opportunity to play three songs in front of an international panel of judges, and then they give you a score, right? You can get a three, which isn't great. You can get a two, which is a little bit better. You can get a one, which is good. Or you can get an A, which is the best possible score you can get. And at my high school that I went to in Arizona, the marching band had only ever gotten A's. We'd only ever gotten superior scores. So there was a high bar, right? So on the day of Arizona State University Band Day, we're standing on the side of the football field at parade rest. We're waiting for our opportunity to take the field in front of the judges and all these people in the stands. And as we're standing there, they give us the two-minute warning. They say, you're going to take the field in two minutes. So we're waiting. We know we've only got 120 seconds. And then something unbelievable happens. Uh, my, uh, my right-hand symbol came untied, the knot. I don't know why. The knot came untied. And when that happens, the symbol is so heavy that uh, it basically just slides off the strap. So I'm standing at parade rest, and all of a sudden my cymbal just crashes to the ground. It makes this horrendous noise. I got all these upperclassmen behind me who were like, you stupid freshman, you idiot, you're going to bleepity bleep and ruin our chance. We've got to get an A. Like, this is, this is going to be the worst thing we've ever You better fix that cymbal. Like, these guys are cussing at me, and they're yelling, and I'm kind of panicked. And so as fast as I can, now I've only got like 60 seconds to get that cymbal retied. I lean over as quick as I can to get the cymbal, and when I do, I hear a noise that's worse than the sound of the cymbal crash. I hear the sound of my pants ripping. And when I say to you that my pants rip, I don't mean I got a little tear. I was wearing these tight black polyester band pants, and they ripped from the bottom of my zipper all the way to my back belt loop. So essentially what I got are two separate legs attached by a zipper. That's what I'm wearing now, right? I'm wearing a whitey tidy Hanes underpants underneath, right? And immediately, like first, I can feel a breeze. And the second thing I got, these upperclassmen are like, bro, we can see your drawers, right? And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I retie the thing. I retie the symbol. And I'm like, okay, well, well, you're like, what, what do I do? There's no way to fix it. I'm like, show must go on, right? The drum major is blowing the whistle for us to take the field. So I just march out on the field, right? And we line up in our first formation for our first song. And that's when it dawns on me that all three of the songs we're performing for the judges, none of them require a crash symbol. All three of them require a hi-hat symbol, which means that my first four counts are one, two, three, four. Turn my rear end towards 20,000 people in the stands, and I march through three songs with my underpants for everyone to see, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I got to tell you, it's really nice of you to clap for that, but I didn't feel great about that level of exposure. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't my finest moment as a freshman. I was already worried about other people's perceptions of me. That didn't make it better. We go to school on Monday, right, because the ASU thing was on a Saturday. We go to school on Monday, and my band teacher goes, hey, I got a videotape of our performance, right? I'm like, no. So he puts it in the VCR, which is an ancient device for playing movies. Uh, he puts it in the VCR, and there are judges that have microphones that are watching, and I kid you not, this is what it sounds like. He puts it on the big screen in our band room, and the judge goes like this, trumpet players, I love to see those high knees. Way to keep your knees up. Well done. Flautists, incredible pitch. The tone is absolutely brilliant. Cymbal player, nice underwear. And I'm like, no! <laughs> right? You get to see like this little white butt moving back and forth on the video, right? It's embarrassing, right? It was embarrassing. None of us like to be exposed. And that story now, that happened to me a long time ago. It's kind of funny now, but at the time it wasn't funny. What we're going to see as we work through John 7, 8, 9 is that people, as they're coming into contact with Jesus and they're hearing what he has to say, they're seeing what he does, 
they're finding that their own lives are exposed. And I tell you that story and I give you that warning because I'm, my hope is that you will be prepared for it because we need to have a conversation about what you're going to do about Jesus, right? In John chapter 7, it tells us, and we're going to move through this one pretty quickly. John chapter 7, it tells us that Jesus begins to preach at a thing called the Feast of Booths. And as he's teaching, and he teaches a variety of different things, but as he's teaching, and you go back and look at it later, the people are divided. So when we come to uh, John chapter 7, verse 40, you can hear all of the various opinions about Jesus. They're hearing him say the same things, they're watching him do the same things, but they are divided on what it is they're actually seeing or who it is they're actually listening to. When they heard his words, it says in John 7, 40, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and, uh, uh, the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see, no prophet arises from Galilee. God bless you, right? Jesus is teaching, and the Pharisees are going, nobody should believe in this. But the people are saying, we think this is the prophet. might be the Christ. They send some guards to arrest him, and the guards don't do it. And they come back to their bosses, and their bosses are like, why didn't you arrest him? And they're like, there's something different about this guy. John chapter 7 tells us that even Jesus' own family was kind of confused about who he was. They were sort of divided about who their own brother was, right? They're confused. There is this... There is this thing that happens with Jesus when we look at the truth of who he is, that it, it stirs us up and it pushes us in different directions. In John chapter 8, as we come to John chapter 8, there's this sort of famous story where at the beginning of John chapter 8, there are some leaders who try and trap Jesus. And the way they try and trap him is by bringing in front of him a woman that they had caught. It says a woman caught in adultery. That means a woman who'd been caught having an affair with someone who was not her husband. Now, the way this trap works and what they're trying to do, they're trying to trap Jesus because they ask him, what are we supposed to do about this woman? The Old Testament law said that for a woman who was caught in adultery, she should be killed. But the Roman governors at the time in which Jesus was doing his ministry had said that the Jews were not allowed to execute people according to Old Testament law. So they put this woman who's caught in adultery in front of Jesus, and the trap is this. If Jesus says, hey, just set her loose or shame her and send her away or whatever, if he said something like that, he would be in compliance with what Romans were asking, but he would be in defiance of Old Testament law. If he says we have to execute her for what she's done, he would be in accordance with Old Testament law, but now all of a sudden he would be in violation of Roman law. So they feel like they've got him in a vice. Look at this, James, or excuse me, John chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman, so what do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. 
Now they're putting him in this pickle, but this is more of what I was already talking about in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, because of the truth of who Jesus is, we see people wrestling with who they are. And that includes, in John chapter 8, these Pharisees and leaders who were so desperate to hold on to their power and so desperate to hold on to their own reputations and their position that they want to get Jesus out of the way. I want you to see that even the trap they're trying to establish, the accusation that they make against this woman has nothing to do with her really. It has everything to do with their own panic, right? It has everything to do with their own desire to remain who they perceive themselves to be. So they put this woman in front of Jesus and they say, what should we do about her? And it tells us here that Jesus begins to write with his finger on the ground. Now in the old, uh, excuse me, in, in the old rabbinic tradition, a rabbi would kneel down and he would teach and he would write things on the ground. John chapter 8 doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus writes here, but most theologians and commentators say that they believe he may have written, go Dodgers in the dirt, which is really interesting. Jesus was probably a Dodgers fan. I can't prove that out of the text, but it, uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, so don't get sidetracked. Sorry, that's my own joke. For the record, this is a side note, that kind of joke makes me feel really happy. Okay, so coming back. All right. So... They said this to test him. He leans down and starts to write with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, check this, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now this is an interesting response. Jesus doesn't respond in either of the two ways they might have expected him to respond. What he says is, if she's committed the crime, then she deserves the justice that comes with the crime. And so whichever one of you is not a sinner... You'll be the first one to punish her. It's a very interesting thing that Jesus says. It's interesting for one huge reason, and it's this. In this particular circle of human beings, including the Pharisees and the scribes, including all the people that were listening to Jesus teach that had sat around to hear what he was already talking about, all of the people in that particular circle, there is only one person in that circle who is qualified to throw a rock at this woman who's committed a crime, right? The only person in the circle who is without sin is Jesus. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, speaking of Jesus, it says, For this, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was without sin. That he was a human being, but he was not broken like the rest of us are broken. That's out of 1 Peter chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 affirms again that Jesus was perfect. That he never compromised God's law and thought were due to attitude. But everybody else in that circle, right? All of these other people who bring this adulterous woman before Jesus and say, what should we do? He looks at them and says, any of you that are without sin, you be the first one to throw a stone. And that's problematic because there isn't anyone in the circle without sin. Nor is there anyone in this room without sin. Now, before that can even make sense to some of you, we probably got to back up a little bit and talk about what sin is, right? Because sin is not like a common word. That's not a word that you hear on the news. You never turn it on and they're like, today in downtown LA, some terrible, terrible sin took place or whatever. Like, it's not a, it's like a churchy word that churchy people use. And therefore, if you don't consider yourself a churchy person, and that's not a bad thing, if you don't consider yourself a churchy person, you might not know what sin means. Let me tell you. 
The Bible teaches that all of us were created with a purpose, right? We talked about this a little bit in the video that Megan did a second ago. All of us were created with a purpose. You and I, no matter what color your skin, no matter what language you speak, no matter how much money you have, no matter where you went to school or where you come from, all of us are created with the same purpose. We are built from the ground up to know God, to glorify Him or to honor Him, and to have a relationship with Him. That, that's what we're built for. The reason that your lungs are breathing air right now, the reason that your heart is beating, each and every one of us created with the very same purpose, to know God and to worship Him, right? That's, that's why we exist. When we talk about sin, what we're talking about is living a life that is not in alignment with our created and intended purpose. Does that make sense? You and I were built to glorify God, and yet with our thoughts and our words and our deeds and in our attitudes, we were also created with the ability, unlike the, the mountains and the trees and the rest of the created order, Romans 1 says that all of the created order glorifies God all the time. You and I have the option. We have the opportunity to glorify God, but with that opportunity also comes the opportunity to glorify other things. In fact, there's sort of a common misperception. Sometimes when people talk about Satan or they talk about the devil, they think that Satan's goal is to get everybody to, you know, like put on a black robe and get pentagram tattoos and listen to heavy metal and dance around a fire and kill chickens or whatever. Listen, uh, Satan does not care about making you a Satanist. Can I tell you what Satan wants to do? Satan wants to get you to glorify anything other than God with your thoughts and your words and your deeds and your attitudes. The goal of our enemy is not to get you to put on a black robe and listen to Ozzy Osbourne. The goal of our enemy is to get you to love sports more than you love Jesus. To get you to love sex more than you love Jesus. To get you to love money more than you love Jesus. Or to love music more than you love Jesus. Or to love art more than you love, love anything. More than you love God. And what's happened is that you've started to use your life for something other than their intended purpose. When we fail to glorify God... The Bible calls that sin. Romans 3, 23 says, all have sinned. That's everybody, all of us, have sinned. It goes on to say, and fallen short of the glory of God. The reason that verse makes sense is that falling short of the glory of God is missing the mark with our intended purpose by design. Uh, when I was, I, I already told you guys I'm kind of a video game nerd. And when, uh, I, I actually was a day one owner of the very first Wii, right? I tend to be like an early adopter. So I got on the wait list. I bought the first Wii. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's all. I don't, I don't really have a point to that story. I just wanted those clapping applause. Thank you. So, no, no. No, but I bought, so I bought the Wii, and, uh, you know, the, the first Wii was not very sophisticated. You guys have probably seen the controllers. They're like these white rectangles, right? And uh, you could play tennis and boxing, and you could do some different things. I remember one day I came home from work, and, uh, and I, wanted to, I wanted to play with my new Wii console, right? And my sons were really little at the time. And so I'm looking for the Wii controller, and I can't find it. So I look under the couch, I look in the coffee table, I look around, I can't find it anywhere. And so I, I call out, and I say, hey, does anybody know where the Wii controller is? And I hear my little son, Hank, at the time he was like three, in the other room, and he goes, uh, he goes yeah, Dad, I have it. And I was like, okay, that's weird. And I'm like, where are you? He's like, I'm in the kitchen. So I go in the kitchen, and when I come around the corner, Hank is sitting at the kitchen counter. He's got a yogurt container open. And instead of a spoon, he's got my brand new Wii controller, and he's dipping my Wii controller in the yogurt, and then he's eating it off with the, and I was like, no, no, right? I was like, I was in, like so freaked out, and here's why. I was, I was troubled because, number one, the Wii controller is capable of so much more than that, right? Like, let me just ask you a question. Is it possible to eat yogurt with a Wii controller? 
totally possible to do that. In fact, Hank proved it a long time ago. You can do that. But let me ask you this as well. What will happen if you continually use that sophisticated piece of equipment for something less than it was designed for? Number one, not only are you using it for something that you could, that you could it, it's capable of doing so much more, but number two, if you continue to use a Wii controller to eat yogurt, sooner or later you destroy the Wii controller. Does that make sense? The same thing is true with our lives. You were built to glorify God. Now, can you glorify other things? Yeah, we all do, all the time. But that is so much less than what you were built for, right? It's like using a Wii controller to eat yogurt. You can do it, but why would you? Your life was built to have a relationship with God, to know him, to be in communion with him, right? And yes, you can worship other things, but if you do that over the long, the long haul, you will destroy your life because it's not what you were built for. You weren't built to glorify other things, and neither was I. So Jesus looks at this crowd in John chapter 8, and he says to them, he says to them, hey, anybody that's without sin can be the one to throw the first stone. And the reason why that answer works is that there isn't anybody in that circle or in this one who is without sin. Romans chapter 3 says, all of us have failed to live up to the purpose for which we were created. All of us have failed to glorify God in thoughts, words, deeds, and attitudes. And while on one level that should make you feel heavy-hearted, that you've used your life for things other than their intended purpose, I also want you to feel the solidarity with your fellow man and your fellow woman in the room. Because while you have failed to glorify God, listen, so have I. And so is the person sitting next to you. And so have all your heroes and your favorite coaches and your parents and your teachers and your pastors. All of us are sinners. We're all broken. We're in it together in that brokenness, right? When we look at the truth of who Jesus is, one of the uncomfortable things that is exposed about us is that he is perfect and we are broken. Jesus says, whichever one of you is without sin can be the one to throw the first stone. And then look at what happens after that. It says in verse 8, once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. I want you to listen to the tone of what Jesus says to this woman. He goes, where are all the people that wanted you to die? And she goes, they all left, right? Because all of them were broken as well. And Jesus looks at her and he says, they don't condemn you anymore. He says, I don't condemn you either. I want you to see the heart of Jesus for this woman, right? Her brokenness is no different than anybody else's brokenness. It's all the same. It has different temporal consequences. Your sin might be different than mine and it might have a different impact on the people around you. The sin of other people may have had a profound impact on you in ways that that sin hasn't had that impact on me, right? Temporal consequence, temporary things, right? But sin is sin. Brokenness is brokenness. Jesus looks at her and says, I don't condemn you, but he doesn't leave it at that. He does look at her and he says, hey, from here on out, maybe don't do that anymore, right? And here's what I want you to catch. When Jesus looks at her and says, you can go and, and don't sin anymore, he's not being judgy. He's not being cruel to her. He's not being bossy or legalistic. Jesus is being loving to her. When he looks at her and says, don't sin anymore, what he's saying to her is, ma'am, you were built for so much more than that, right? Quit using the Wii controller for yogurt, right? Your life is worth more than that. He looks at her and he says, go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus, in this same chapter, in John chapter 8, in verse 12, the very next verse, Jesus spoke to them saying, 
I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus talks about himself being the light of life. We talked on the very first session we had together about the fact that there is light and life in who Jesus is. Further and down in John chapter 8, verse 31, yes, 831, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus looks at them, and he says, look, I know that when you listen to me, and when you abide in the things that I'm saying, my, my words are a light, and they shine, and they expose the truth, Right? And it might feel to you at first like that exposure is shaming. Or it might feel at first like that exposure brings guilt. And it only brings guilt because all of a sudden the light is turned on. Remember the story I told you about waking up in the bathroom? The light is turned on and I'm relieved but I'm also embarrassed because of what was happening before, right? Jesus says the truth of who I am will shine into your life. And rather than feeling ashamed, rather rather than feeling like you need to hide, I want you to understand that that light will shine into your life. And what that truth does... It set you free. It sets you free. What's he talking about? How's, how does the truth set you free? Why doesn't the truth make you feel bad? Why doesn't the truth about my brokenness make me feel bad? How does it set me free? Well, the reality is that while the truth of who Jesus is exposes our brokenness and it exposes our sin and the sin of all human beings, I also have to reconcile the fact that Jesus knows I'm broken and that he loves me still. I mentioned before, I think that, that there isn't going to be a time, right? I, we live a life where we're worried about people finding things out about us, right? Everybody in the room has things that you're embarrassed about. Everybody has embarrassing moments or things that are ashamed of. And one of the fears that human beings live with all the time is that if people knew, if people knew the stuff about me, right? If people knew what I'd done or the things I'd said or the places I've been, if people knew my mistakes, they wouldn't want to be my friend anymore, they wouldn't want to be around me anymore. They would judge me. They might dislike me. They, they, they might think terrible things about me. And what the truth of Jesus does is it sets us free from that because Jesus doesn't expect you to clean yourself up in order to be loved. He doesn't expect you to, to get your life in order in order to be rescued from sin and death. The love of God shines into your life while you're broken and while you're dirty. The love of God doesn't come when you're clean. It comes so that you can become clean, Right? He doesn't expect you to clean yourself up. He knows you can't, and neither can I. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The freedom that it sets you free from is that needing to pretend anymore, to wear a mask, to be fake or false, to put on a facade. You don't have to do that because Jesus knows who you are, and he loves you still. There is never going to be a moment. Hume, 2022, I want you to listen to me. There will never be a moment in your life, ever, from now until forever, that anyone will be able to go behind your back to God and tell him something about you that will change his mind about you. There's never going to be a time where someone will be able to kneel down and pray and say, God, did you know this about Darren? Did you know this about Stacy? Did you know this about Mike? And, and God will be like, what? I had no idea. Well, away with him, right? No, God knows you and he loves you. He knows exactly who you are with your bustedness. I want to move on to John chapter 9 and the time we have left. In John chapter 9, interestingly, Jesus heals another person, right? In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who's been blind from birth. When he heals the man who's been blind from birth, once again, he does that on the Sabbath, which the Jews don't like. And so just like we saw last night, uh, while they should be celebrating like, whoa, this is so cool, this guy was blind and now he can see, instead they're like, who did this? He's not supposed to be healing people on the Sabbath, that's against the rules, right? 
And so they start to ask the man who was blind, and now he can see. And he's like, I don't know, I didn't see him because I was blind, and he healed me. And by the time my eyes could see, he was gone. So I don't know who he was, right? I don't know what happened. So then they go to the guy's parents, and they're like, hey, tell us what happened. What's the deal with your son? And his parents are so scared that the Jewish leaders are going to kick them out of church that they're like, we don't know, he's an adult, ask him, right? So by the time we pick it up here in John chapter 9, 24, they come to grill the, the newly sight, sighted man in John 9, 24, for the second time, the Jewish leaders called the man who had been born blind and they said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man who healed you is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard of that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out, right? So they reject the healed man because they won't listen to his logic. He's like, I don't know why you're accusing this guy. He had the power to heal me. None of the rest of you seem to have the power to do that. I've been blind my whole life. This guy is from God. And the Jewish leaders, exposed to the truth of who Jesus is, are so worried about holding on to their reputation, so worried about holding on to their truth, right? And there I'm saying truth with like a lowercase t. They're trying to hold on to their worldview that they actually shun the man who was formerly blind rather than listen to what he's saying about the truth of who Jesus is. So as we go further, it says this in verse 35. And here's, here's kind of where we'll wrap tonight. In John 9, 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found the man, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Because remember, this man hadn't seen Jesus. And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. We're going to think about the logic of what Jesus says. Jesus says, I came into the world and, and my presence here, the truth of who I am, the truth of what I'm saying, the truth of what I'm doing is a dividing line. He says, I've come for judgment. But what he, what he means there is not that he sits in judgment over people and says, you're bad and you're bad and you're good and you're bad and you're bad. But rather that the truth of who Jesus is, is a dividing line. People have to make a decision about who he is. They have to make a decision about what they're going to do when their own brokenness is revealed. Their failure to live up the purpose for which they were made. The fact that they've believed a bunch of things maybe that aren't true. Jesus says, I came to this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. It's a beautiful thing Jesus says. And some of the Pharisees who were nearby, they overheard him in verse 40. And they said to him, are you calling us blind? So here again are these Jewish leaders, right? These religious people. And they hear what Jesus says, and they're like, are you talking to us? Are you saying something about us? It sounded like you just said we're blind. Are you calling us blind? Because we're kind of a big deal around here. We know lots of stuff about the Bible. We've written books about it. We've taught classes about it. We're very well respected in this community, right? They're like, are you calling us blind? And listen to Jesus' response. It's powerful in verse 41. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. 
But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you could just admit that you're broken, if you could admit that you don't have it all figured out, if you could admit that, you, that no matter how hard you try, you still make mistakes and you're still busted, that you need someone to rescue you and save you, if you could admit your own blindness, I could fix it. But the fact that you continue to insist that you don't have any problems means you've got to stay like you are. The fact that you continue to insist that you've got it all figured out, that you have all the answers, that your worldview makes the most sense, the fact that you can't admit that you're broken and you need someone to rescue you means that you have to stay broken. It's interesting in the scriptures, it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Here's what I want you to see tonight. We talked already about the truth of God. We talked about the truth of his word that points us to Christ. We talked about the truth of the life of Christ and what is revealed there. Tonight we're talking about the truth of who we are. And the truth of who we are, as we look at John 7, 8, and 9, is that as you listen to him and you look at him, it makes you evaluate the things about your own life, about your own brokenness. The Bible teaches that all of us are sinners, that all of us are broken, that we were built with a purpose and we failed to live up to that purpose. And not only are we using our lives for far less than they were intended, but the way in which we're losing our life, Romans chapter 6 says, will ultimately separate us from God. It says the wages of sin or the consequence of sin is death. And all I'm encouraging you tonight to think about is whether or not you can admit you need a Savior whether or not you can admit that you need somebody to come in and rescue you. You know, the, the, the Christian worldview is the only one on the planet that says mankind needs rescuing. Every other major faith system in the world says, if you try hard enough, you'll achieve, right? If you get enough karma, or you put enough money in an offering plate, or you memorize enough sacred passages, or you do enough good deeds, you walk enough old ladies across the street or whatever, you can do it. You can do it. Just try as hard as you can. The Christian worldview is the only one that says... You aren't the little engine that can, you're the little engine that can't. You're busted. But the good news is, there's a man named Jesus who heals the blind, and he rescues the sick, and he binds up the broken. I want to finish with one story from my friend. I, I got a buddy named Eric who planned a, uh, a secret trip for his friends, excuse me, a secret trip for his kids, his children, to Disneyland. We were living up at Hume Lake at the time, which is kind of in the Central Valley at the main lake. And uh, my friend Eric, he planned the secret trip. But in order to get to Disneyland by opening time, he had to get his kids up while it was still dark. It was like 3 in the morning, right? So that they could drive down to Anaheim and go to Disneyland when it opened. So he gets his kids. He's got four kids. He gets them up early in the morning. It's still dark. And he says, hey, you guys, get up. Put some clothes in a backpack. We're going to go on an adventure. And his kids are kind of rubbing sleep out of their eyes. And they're like, what? It's still dark out. And he's like, I know it's dark, but it's going to be really awesome. I got something great planned for you. Like, get up. Let's go. And they're like, we don't want to go anywhere. We want to sleep in. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, you can sleep on the road, but we're going to go. We got to go. So come on, let, let's get up. Get your stuff. We're going to go. I got something awesome planned for you. And they're like, we don't want to go anywhere. You always make us go. We don't want to go. And we were living in the mountains, which means, like, you always have to drive, like, an hour and a half to get to the doctor or the grocery store or whatever. So his kids go, we don't, we're only going to get up and go if you promise we can go to McDonald's. Can we go to McDonald's? And he's like, no, you don't, you don't want to go to McDonald's, right? We don't have time for that. And they're like, yes, we do. We want to go to McDonald's. You never take us to McDonald's. You always make us go to Fresno, and you never take us to McDonald's. We don't want to get up unless you're going to take us to McDonald's. And he's like, guys, trust me. We don't have time for that. 
Like, just get your stuff and, and come where I want to take you. And they were like, promise you'll take us to McDonald's. And so my friend Eric got his kids in the car. He drove them an hour and a half down to Fresno. They went to the play place at McDonald's, which you and I both know always smells like pee. And then he put his kids back in the car and he drove them home. And that was the end of their day. Now here's the thing. What their father had planned for them was infinitely better than what they, what they thought they wanted. What they thought they deserved. What they thought they needed. Hume SoCal 2022, I just want to ask you a question and I just want you to evaluate this in your own life. Is it possible that you've been insisting that God do what you tell him? That you've been insisting that God orient himself in the way you want him oriented? Have you been insisting that you deserve pleasure or that you deserve power or that you deserve money or that you deserve influence? Have you been insisting on your way? Because what I want to suggest to you is that if you, like the Pharisees, say, we're not blind, we know what we want, we want to go to McDonald's, that God will give you the thing you're asking for. If you don't want to know him and worship him, if you don't want to be in relationship with him and you insist upon that, he will give you what you want. But the reality is that what you think you want is infinitely less than what your father planned for you. What your father has planned for you is absolutely incredibly better than what you think you want or deserve. And so tonight, as we look at the truth of who Jesus is, we feel the uncomfortability of our own brokenness exposed. I don't want you to feel shamed. I don't want you to feel rejected. It is true that Jesus points out the fact that we're busted, that like every person in that circle in John 8, we are broken. But he also invites us to be his daughters and his sons, to come on the adventure that he created us for, to stop using our lives for things that are less than what they were built for, and instead to join him in alignment with the purpose that he created us for. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would give each one of these students, each one of these human beings, whether they're students or not, that you would give all of us in the room the ability to make an honest assessment about our own lives. To recognize that many times we get preoccupied, like the Pharisees in John 8, with pointing out the sins of other people and wanting to see other people judged or other people punished. And we don't recognize that there isn't anybody in the circle who's without sin except for Jesus. God, will you give us a heart of compassion and solidarity with our fellow man in our brokenness? Will you also give us a repentant heart? I love that your message, Lord Jesus, was repent or turn around because the kingdom of God's available. You were asking us, calling us to turn from our own way and to turn toward you and the adventure you built us for. I pray that each and every human being in this room created in your image would be able to recognize that you, Lord Jesus, exposed the truth of our own brokenness. And yet, as that truth is exposed, we are also wrapped up by the truth that you came to rescue us and save us because we cannot save ourselves. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.